Well, thank you for that, Brother Dan. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Today, we're going to be reading the, uh, the second chapter of Revelation. We're going to be reading the entire chapter today, so Revelation chapter 2. And when you find it, would you please stand for reading God's Word? Alright, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, as you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you also have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. <coughs> I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I'll give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, 
who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are asking this morning, Lord, that you give us ears to hear so that uh, your truth affects us in a positive way so that our lives are changed by it so that as children of yours we grow in your grace and grow in the knowledge of you so that you become bigger and bigger and bigger in our view so that this world, the things of this world our own lives take on their proper place and become smaller Lord, so that we are able, as you've instructed us in these passages, to to not fear and to overcome by the strength that you give, by the grace that you impart. And Lord, as always, we desire, Lord, if there's anyone in this room today who does not know you, may this be the day that you give them ears to hear. And that they surrender to your rule. And from this day forward, live for you, for your honor and glory. Know the forgiveness and the peace that only comes through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. All of these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And be seated. Amen. We um, obviously got a lot of ground to cover here today, all right? So um, I'll say a couple things. I'm, if, if you're reading ahead, and I do encourage that, please, um, if you're not, at least read the next chapter, like, you know, some, this afternoon or this week or something like that. We've got seven uh, letters to seven different congregations recorded for us here in chapters two, all of chapter um, two and three. Uh, so this really all goes together, and I, I knew you know it'd be too much to take on two chapters. And uh, even with chapter two, I'm obviously just going to try to hit on the high points to drive home um, some major points. So if if uh, if questions arise in your mind, you know something that I seem to skip over or don't uh, you know just don't cover well or whatever, um, write it down or keep it in your mind, and, and we'll we'll uh, we'll have opportunity for that tonight. To talk to discuss those things tonight, because uh, as I said, I'm just going to try to try to hit some main points this morning, and Lord willing, we'll move on to chapter three um, next week. My intentions were to take these seven letters and make it a two-part uh, message. Um, if I run out of time, you know what? We'll stop, and it'll probably become a three-part or a four-part message. All right, uh, but uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, I also, you know, I want to keep making this point as well. Uh, these things are given to us <clears throat> for our encouragement and strength. Um, in fact, uh, it, it, here's my title for this, okay? Um, love letters from the Lord. So, so today's part one, love letters from the Lord. Because 
that's that's really what I believe is is going on here. And um, let me let me just jump ahead for for just a moment to kind of show you that. Um, in in chapter three, verse nineteen, the Lord says to the church, to the congregation at Laodicea, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So in, in the midst of his rebuke for that congregation, he he makes and it and it is strong, but but he makes them aware that um, I rebuke those whom I love. Those whom I love and I reprove, uh, I reprove and discipline. So, so th- these are love letters. You know, some some of them are very strong. They have some painful aspects to them, um, but that's what's behind it: the love of the Lord, leading us to repentance, strengthening us, disciplining us, training us for life in this world. And the whole purpose is um, to, of course, to increase our hope in Him um, and to strengthen us. These letters were sent. Um, to strengthen these congregations by calling them to lives characterized by repentance from worldly temptations uh, or sin, uh, and also by calling them to obedience to the Lord. So, so that's that's what we're going to see in these letters: um, commendations for for jobs well done, uh, and rebuke uh, where there is error, and uh, the whole thing is designed to strengthen. The churches, all right, because the Lord loves us, and and as we've said several times, this by extension now this this all applies to us. These letters were written to se- uh, seven real congregations in the ancient um, Roman province of Asia, and they're listed for us here. And of course, we're fixing. Our, uh, Joel just read the first four letters, and we're going to talk about this morning, and then there are three more in chapter three. Um, but by extension, they they're. For us, they apply to us for our encouragement, um, because of sin's temptation and because of tribulation from the world that's not brought on by sin. I, I, earlier, I was just doing what I typically do every day: scan the headlines, and I, and I saw this: suicide bombers kill 14 people outside Pakistani churches. So, 14 Christians dead in Pakistan this morning. Um, at the hands of suicide bombers. Um, that's tribulation. Um, and, and, of course, it takes on various forms. But that's just, that's just one uh, example, one extreme example. And so these, the Lord knows. The Lord knows we're dealing with those things. Um, I say we. He knows those people in those places are dealing with those things, and He knows that we're dealing with what we're dealing with. And, uh, of course, that kind of thing may be coming our way <coughs> as well. So... These things are written to us for our good and strength and encouragement. And they're coming to us out of the Lord's love, His love for us. Okay. And let's go back to verse 1. And and I'm going to try to move along here probably uh, rather quickly, like I say, to make the major points. But um, we're going to deal with the first four letters, that is, to the congregation at Ephesus, to the congregation at Smyrna, to the congregation at Pergamum, and to the congregation in Thyatira. Again, all of these um, churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia, which is today uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey. All right, so here's the first one. To the congregation in Ephesus. This is the letter to the congregation in Ephesus. Now, 
just for kind of a subtitle here on that, um, and, I'm, and I'm, I'll explain this as we go, but, but the issue here is what I would call cold orthodoxy. Cold orthodoxy. Uh, and it starts out with a, with a beautiful uh, commendation from the Lord. Look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. And, of course, he's instructing John, the Apostle John, to write. And he says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, there's a pattern here that, um, that I want to mention. Um, and, and I've kind of put it in my own words here, but you, you know, and you may word it differently, but you'll see the pattern emerge if you haven't noticed it already. In, in every one of these letters, um, they, they begin with uh, a self-identification by Jesus. That is, you know, he, he and, and what it's, he's coming from, what we read in chapter 1, where, where John gives the description of Jesus when he sees the vision of the glorified Christ, Jesus. So the wording is taken from there, from that description, and he uses different aspects of that description with each letter. So everyone starts with a self-identification from Jesus, and then an assessment that he gives of the church, and, of course, included in that is commendation and rebuke. Um... Two churches have only commendation, no rebuke. That's awesome. That's where we'd like to be, right? And one church has only rebuke, no commendation. And then, thirdly, there's exhortation, like, for example, call for repentance, you know, what, what to do specifically in that specific instance. And then, fourthly, there's a warning for the unrepentant. And, and remember this. As I said a minute ago, a lot of these things sting, all right? But, but don't, don't put it out of your mind and say, well, that's not for me because I'm born again. Every one of these letters are written to churches. He's not speaking to the world. He's speaking to churches. So these, these are for us. Um, the, the, the commendations uh, and the, the critique, you know, the, the, the rebukes. So the exhortation would include, uh, uh, for example, a call for repentance, and then the warning to the unrepentant, and then a promise of reward to the faithful. So you get warnings for the unrepentant, and then a promise of reward for the faithful, those who, who actually do what the Lord is calling for. So, again, just number one is self-identification uh, by Jesus. Number two, an assessment of the church that he's talking to. Number three, exhortation. Uh, for for correction, or you could say a prescription for correction. Number four, a warning to the unrepentant. And number five, a promise of reward to the faithful, the repentant. All right, so in Ephesus, he begins with his self-identification this way. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And we talked last week about the seven stars. And what <clears throat> we don't know 100% what the seven stars represent. Um, except what we're told in the last verse of chapter 1, the seven stars are the angels. Literally, uh, the word there, angelos, can be translated uh, simply messengers. So, I mean, he, he could have in view there human messengers, like, like the pastor. You, you know, some people think he's referring to the pastors of the church, church, the congregation, uh, or a messenger who's bringing, you know, physically bringing that message to the congregation. Or some people think he's talking about a... Uh, a spiritual being, and so um, some translations, as the one I just read, um, use the term angel instead of messenger. 
Um, so we're just not certain what the, what the, who these messengers are. Are they angelic beings that have some kind of, uh, give some kind of special service to that particular con- congregation? Or is it uh, human uh, messengers, which frankly I'm, I'm more inclined to, to think that's the case. But either way, he holds them in his right hand. Right? And, and so now this is how he's identifying himself. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, we know what that represents. Again, look at the last verse in chapter 1. The seven lampstands are the seven churches, are the seven congregations. So the seven lampstands that, are, that John sees in his vision when he sees the glorified Christ, those represent the seven congregations. And where is Jesus? And this is crucial. We talked about this last week. He's in the midst of them. He's walking in the midst of his churches. Listen, there's a, there's a wonderful thing. Like I say, some of these things, some of these rebukes sting, but there's a wonderful thing about being directly accountable to the Lord. Notice the, the Lord is among his people and he's dealing with them directly. All right? So that's awesome. It's awesome that we have that kind of personal relationship with the Lord and that kind of direct um, access and that kind of direct communication. So, um, he says, I'm he. I'm he who holds the seven stars in, in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your work. I'm in your midst. That's what he's saying. I'm in your midst, and therefore I know what's going on. I know your works. Now, here comes the commendation for the, for the uh, congregation at Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Or you just, you know, the word endurance is, is there. Um, here translated patient endurance. So, and that's explanatory. I know your works. What works? Well, their toil and their patient endurance. He says, I'm, I'm aware of those things. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. Very interesting. They, uh, they have actually um, been exposed to false teachers, and they've put them to the test, and they've exposed them to be false, and so they've, they've rejected the false teaching. They have, and this is what they're being commended for, holding the sound doctrine, not being willing to listen to false teachers. And if you remember when we went through the book of Acts, back in Acts chapter 20, Paul called the, uh, the elders of the church at Ephesus together, and he told them, there are going to be some from among your own selves who rise up trying to, to lead disciples away to, them, to themselves, trying to make disciples for themselves. Well, obviously, they, they took heed to Paul's warning. And so they, they're very alert to false teachers and Jesus says, you can't bear them. And he's commending them because they cannot bear with those who are evil. Again, not, not talking about the outside world out there. I'm talking about false teachers um, who have come and infiltrated the church. You've tested them, those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So again, commendation for their for their sound doctrine and for their endurance in these things. And obviously they were, um, just by what's implied here, they were getting exposed to this, but uh, they were uh, diligent in their responsibility. So he commends them. So there's a commendation, but now, verse 4, 
Here comes rebuke. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, the King James says you, you, your, your first love. And there's been speculation. You know, people wondered, well, what, what was that? What, what, was their, what was their first love? And some people have said, well, obviously it's, it's talking about Jesus. You know, they, they, they don't, they've, they've gotten their priorities out of order so that they don't love Jesus like they ought. But let me suggest this, and I appreciate the way it's worded here. He says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love, the love you had at first. Well, in other words, what he's saying is you've abandoned love. The love that you had at first, at, at the beginning of your Christian experience. So what you've got is cold orthodoxy. Ortho, the, the idea behind orthodoxy is, is right opinion. They're, they have sound doctrine, void of love. And so, yes, there's commendation for the sound doctrine, but strong reproof for the lack of love. And, and you understand why if you read much of the New Testament. For example... In 1 Corinthians 13, we find, right, that everything is empty of any real meaning apart from love. So Jesus rebukes them for that, and the exhortation is He calls them to repentance, and He gives them three things here to do. These are, these are imperatives. Number one, remember. Remember from where you have fallen. Number two, repent. Of course, that means turn. Turn. And go the other direction. A friend of mine was telling, he's a children's minister, he was telling me a story just the other day about he was trying to illustrate that to the kids and, and get them to where they would get the idea. And, and he got a good run going toward the wall. And the thing, what he was going to do was turn at the last moment and then, you know, and then tell all the kids, you see, if I repented. If I hadn't repented, you know, I'd have slammed into the wall. But at the last moment, he kind of tripped and he slammed into the wall. And so... <laughs> So instead, he got to tell them, that's what happens when you don't repent. (laughs) So Jesus, that's what Jesus is saying. Turn, turn. Remember, number one, and number two, return. And do the works you did at first. You you see, remember from where you've fallen. That is, you've got to do like, like we do when we lose something. Retrace the steps in your mind. Figure out where it is you got distracted. And get back to that point. It's amazing how often we hear people say, we hear Christians say, boy, when I first came to the Lord, man, I was on fire and I, you know, this and that, and I was witnessing to everybody. Well, get back to that. If you can't get back there, start asking the Lord for help. Lord, grant me the grace to, I mean, if it was motivated out of love, now, unless you were just doing it to be a show off, but if it was motivated by love, that, that's where we need to be. We need to be loving Christ and loving people. And yes, we need to have sound doctrine. You know, I'm, I'm thankful for uh, the, the Reformed heritage. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's, I'm very thankful for that. Reformed doctrine, which I think is, is uh, you know, stays true to Scripture. Um, but, again, that without love is, Paul says, like a banging symbol. You know, it's just, it's just uh, not making any... Um, any sound that, that you know that you can make any sense out of. There has to be love. 
Boy, there's a lot more we could say on that, but I'm going to have to move on. So, Jesus says, and here's the warning. He says, remember, uh, oh, and I forgot the third imperative, which is do, all right? So, remember, repent, and do. Remember where you've fallen, repent, that is turn, change direction, and do the works you did at first. Now, what if, what if we don't? What if we don't repent? What if we don't turn? What if we don't do what Jesus is saying do? Here's, here's the warning, and it is strong. This is one of those stingers. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What is Jesus saying? I think what he's saying is simply this. You will not exist as a church anymore if you do not repent. I will remove your lampstand. That's the judgment. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet, this you have, and he goes back to the uh, commending them for their sound doctrine. This you have. You hate the works of Nicolaitans. Now, let me say this. The Nicolaitans are mentioned twice here um, in in this letter and then again in the letter to the church of uh, Pergamum. And uh, we don't know what that is. And, and, and yes, I know there are explanations. I've heard them, but, but they are speculation, all right, at best. I mean, we, we don't know. We don't know who the Nicolaitans were. We don't know what they taught. All we know about them is what we have here in the text, and it doesn't tell us who they were or what they taught. Um, and, and the Greek doesn't tell you. You say, well, you know, the name means this and that. People say, well, it, it doesn't tell us. I mean, we don't, we don't know who they were or what they taught. We know this. They were false teachers with false doctrine. And so that's the main point. Jesus is commending the Ephesian church for hating. Notice the strong language. You have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, um, which I also hate. So Jesus hates sound doctrine. He hates the works that come out of it. And, uh, and he's commending the Ephesians for hating it as well. Now he says... He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is pretty characteristic of how he ends these. And he's basically saying, look, if you have ears to hear, not, not meaning physically, but spiritual ears, hear, hear, let this sink in, let it affect this call, these imperatives to remember, repent, and do. Jesus is saying, do them. Obedience is always tied to faith. Where there's true faith in the Lord, there's obedience to the Lord. So, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, that's what he's calling for us to do, the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now again, we're going to see this. um, It's characteristic of the letters. It's a promise of eternal life for those who conquer for those who overcome. All right? The second one, to the church in Smyrna. And interestingly, there's no rebuke here for the church in Smyrna. The angel of the church of Smyrna write, the, word, the words of the first and the last, he's emphasizing his eternality, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. But or a synagogue of Satan. So Jesus says, I, I know what you're dealing with, and I know who you are. 
And by the way, again, this is, this is one of the main points in reading this whole book and getting God's perspective. He wants us to know who we are. So, so Jesus says, yes, yes, I know. I'm aware of your tribulation. I'm aware of your poverty. I'm aware of the slander that is, that is levied against you. But look, you are rich. You are rich. How can that be? Well, as, if we don't already know, as we move through the book, we'll, we'll, it'll become more and more obvious. But, but what he's doing is helping us take our focus off of the temporal, you know, the things of this world, including all of the trouble that we have in this world. And he's helping us lift our sights to the eternal. Right? So, so whatever you're going through now that may have you feeling impoverished, uh, if you are in Christ, you are rich. And by the way, again, just to, just to reemphasize, Jesus knows our tribu- tribulation. He knows our poverty. He knows the slander of those who rail against us. He is fully aware. He knows our works, like He says back in the first letter. And, and he, he knows, he knows um, what we're doing. And He knows where we are. He knows what we're going through in terms of trials. Now, he says in verse 10, boy, this is a great uh, word in terms of relevance for us today. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. That's one I've been trying to let ring into my head. I think all, all American Christians need to have it ringing in our, in our minds. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. If you've got young children... Um, like I do, I have some grown, and, and of course Jordan, 13. Um, they're, they're growing up in a different world than you and I did. And more change is coming. But here's the word for the church, don't fear. And it's not, don't, don't fear, you won't have to suffer. It's not what he says to the church at Smyrna. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. He's saying it's coming. And you know, when Paul wrote to the Philippians, he referred to it as a gift to the Philippians. You've been gifted. You've been graced. Not only to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for His name. And so Jesus says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Now, uh, I think the timing there is, is probably just um, symbolic, uh, representing a, sh- a relatively short period of time, imprisoned for ten days. Um, but the tribulation is real. I mean, that's what he's, he's using some, some symbolic language to describe real tribulation that they are about to encounter. And here's the exhortation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Do you see how he's, he's lifting our sights? Don't, don't fear what you're about to suffer here. Put your mind on what is, he, what is ahead in eternity. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Notice that language. It's, it's not a crown of... He's talking about the substance of it. It's not a crown of gold. It's a crown of life. He will crown us with life. You, you give up your life. There's the paradox. You give up your life for Christ, and He crowns you with life afterward. 
So be faithful. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There's, there again is the assurance of eternal life. What's the second death? The second death is being thrown into the lake of fire. We'll find that out later in the book. So he says, you, if you overcome, you'll not be hurt by the second death. There is an exhortation here um, and, and a remembrance, uh, reminder of the reward that lies ahead for the faithful. In verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So now that's how he identifies himself. Again, pulling from the language of chapter 1. Verse 13, here's the assessment. I know where you dwell. He knows where we are. And look where they dwell. Where Satan's throne is. I mean, they're right in the midst of, in the presence of evil. And by the way, if I, if I hadn't made it clear, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, when, when we read through these, look, look for application for, for us, because I think it's here in every one of these. You know, a lot of people say, well, each one of these represents a part of the church age, a, a different dispensation. No, I don't think so. I think each one of these represents what the church is going through all the way through the church age. And, and so different aspects are, are, you know, maybe a little more prevalent at different times. At some points, uh, maybe it was like Ephesus where there, there's a lot more false teaching than there are at other points. At some points, there's a lot more um, persecution than there are at other points. Um, but all of these things are characteristic of the church throughout the church age. So all of these things are applicable um, to us in our day. And he knows where we are. Some of the bad things that are going on in our country, some of the bad things that are going on in our world, he has full knowledge of. He knows exactly what we're confronting. And, and he says, yet, here's the commendation, you hold fast my name. Now, this is interesting because these, these next two, the church at Pergamum, and I'm going to kind of take these together, the church at Pergamum and the church at Thyatira um, are what I would call compromised churches. The first one, um, Ephesus, cold orthodoxy. The, sex, the second one, Smyrna, they were rich toward God, even, even in the face of the trouble that they were facing here. And now, again, uh, Pergamum and Thyatira are, are compromised. So he says, interestingly, you hold fast my name. That is, they have not given up their profession of faith in Christ. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Now, here comes the rebuke. I have a few things against you. You have some, some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now, um, we're going to see more of this in the next one I'm, I'm, I'm about to read through. But, and, it's, and it's hard to discern here um, how literal to take some of these things. In other words, he's talking about literal sexual immorality, um, literal meat offered to idols being eaten. Are, are these things, these, these uh, symbols of idolatry, um, are they used for that reason, just to expose the idolatry, the idolatrous 
thinking and the idolatrous acts of the church. Well, let me just say this. I don't have any problem with taking it literally because, for example, you go back and read the book of 1 Corinthians, um, Paul deals with these very things going on in the church at Corinth. Literally. You know, the sexual immorality and eating meat offered to idols, which was a, uh, a part of pagan worship. You know, so it was an idolatrous practice. So it's possible here that they're being used in a symbolic sense just to say to the church, you know, you're, 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 you're more like the culture than you should be. You know, you're compromising. Come out from among them and be separate. And, and that, that, of course, is certainly still true, but I think probably the way they're compromising is actually committing some of these acts. At least, again, I'm basing that on what I've gotten from 1 Corinthians, for example. And this is all part of what's going on in the Roman Empire. All right, so he says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans, the Nicolaitans again. Therefore, repent. So here's the, here's the exhortation, the prescription to get well. <laughs> repent. Repent. If not, now here comes the warning. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now we know why he identified himself as the one with the two-edged sword, right? Because what he's saying is, I'm going to wield this thing against you if you don't repent. And of course, he's talking about the Word of God, the sword of my mouth. Verse 17, uh, which, by the way, you know, Jesus says that's how every man will be judged according to His Word. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. There it is again. He's calling for the church to overcome, to conquer. The Greek word there is the word that we get our word uh, Nike from. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So again, a, a promise of reward in eternity with Christ. Now, uh, quickly to the next one, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works. There it is again. And, he'll, and he says this several times. I know your works. Now, nothing is hidden from the Lord. Remember where he's at? He's pictured walking among the candlesticks. And the candlesticks represents the seven churches. So he's walking among his congregations. He's fully aware of what we're facing in terms of how the world is coming against us, in terms of temptation, in terms of persecution. And he's also fully aware of our own misdeeds, you know, where we are off track. I know your works. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance. There's commendation again for Thyatira. Love, faith, service, endurance. And contrast this to Ephesus in, in verse 19. That your latter works exceed the first. Remember, remember with Ephesus, he says, you've left the love that you had at first. But now to Thyatira, he says, he indicates growth. Your latter works exceed the first. All sounding good so far. But then he says in verse 20, I have this against you, 
that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. Now, notice the, um, the similarity to Pergamum in terms of their offenses. To practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, so in, in Pergamum, you have those under the influence of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam, the Old Testament um, prophet who, who uh, was hired to prophesy against Israel and later set up a, uh, uh, a stumbling block for them by seducing them to commit sexual immorality with uh, uh, foreign women. All right, So there you have in, in Pergamum those holding to the doctrines of Balaam and here it is those holding to um, the deeds of Jezebel. Now, we don't know if this is a literal you know, person, named, woman named Jezebel in the congregation, or if it's using Old Testament imagery, you know, Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, notorious <laughs> Jezebel. Um, remember the showdown with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Uh, those were hired prophets of Jezebel and and. and Elijah stands against them on Mount Carmel and it's the amazing story calling down fire from heaven. And then, and then right after that, instead of uh, revival, you know, and repentance throughout the land and revival, Jezebel determines to kill him and he runs for his life. Um, it may be that it's just using that imagery, the Lord's using that imagery because Jezebel was so wicked. And, he's, and just like he does, does with Balaam there, he, he, bring, he pulls that person from the Old Testament and says, look, it, you're, you're, the way you're acting is as though you are following in the, the footsteps of Jezebel, following the leadership of Jezebel, mimicking Jezebel. And, and it's manifesting in the same way that it did with Pergamum, um, sexual immorality, and eating meat offered to idols. Again, that's, that's pagan worship. So it's idolatry, in other words. Now, here comes the warning. Behold, verse 22, I will throw her into a sick bed, onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation. Judgment. And remember how he, he reveals himself here in verse 18. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. That seems to be the whole picture that he's painting here, that he's, that he's coming in judgment unless there's repentance. And so he says, I will throw them into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Again, because they're copying her. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He. It's a mouthful right there. I am He. And John, he says... If you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. All the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. In other words, it'll, it, the fact that I know what's going on in the deepest recesses of your being will become manifest when I come in judgment if you do not repent. I will give to each of you according to your works, which he is condemning here. Verse 24. 
But to the rest, now here's an exhortation, encouragement for the faithful. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Isn't that good? He said, to those of you who are faithful, who have been true, not only to your profession, not only that you, that you claim to follow Christ, but your, your conduct, your lifestyle has borne that out. I'm not going to put on you any other burden. Just hold fast. He's calling for endurance again. Conquering. Hold fast what you have until I come. Verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. Notice that. What I said a moment ago. Um, there's no true faith without works. If you truly believe on the Lord, then you obey the Lord. You know, the Reformers used to say, we, we believe in um, justification by faith alone, but it's not a faith that is alone. James said it this way, faith without works is dead. That's the inspired version. <laughs> faith without works is dead. All right? So, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with them. Uh, he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All of these things. The Spirit is saying to the churches. That's why Jesus says repeatedly, if you have ears to hear, that is, if you can hear what the Spirit is saying, if you are tuned in to the Spirit by divine power, then hear. Hear what the Spirit is saying. These are times that call for faithfulness. These are times that call for endurance. And part of the grace of this whole book and these letters is that Jesus is promising just that to those who will endure. I say that because you may be thinking, well, you know, bombings in churches and people being, headed, be, being beheaded and so forth. How in the world will I endure? Because God will grant the grace. That's how. By His power. By His strength. So, hear what the Spirit is saying and endure, conquer, hold fast. And the promises that He gives here, again, have to do with eternal reward and ruling with Him. That pro prophecy, in fact, it was concerning Christ in Psalm 2, that He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. But here, Jesus is extending it to us because we shall rule and reign with Him. If we hold fast, if we endure by His grace. A few things I'm just going to mention in closing, and, and then Lord willing, we'll, we'll pick up. Um, well, again, like I said, well, I'll give opportunity for some discussion tonight, but uh, next time we'll, we'll pick up um, chapter 3 in the next three churches. Whew, I'm out of time here. Real quick. Christians must be characterized... By love. And I'm just going to give you four things. Christians must be characterized by love. 
Jesus says in John 13, 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's what the church at Ephesus left and what he's calling them back to. Secondly, Christians must be characterized by doctrinal purity. Even with those rebukes to the church at Ephesus, we don't want to miss the commendation. I mean, they, they were faithful in terms of sound doctrine. They, were, they would not tolerate. What you see in Pergamum and Thyatira, where, where they are compromising and tolerating the false teaching, Ephesus would not have it. And they're commended for that. Christian congregations must be characterized by sound doctrine or doctrinal purity. Thirdly, Christian congregations must be characterized by godliness. Godliness. Or you could say it this way. You know, the last one we said uh, doctrinal purity. You could say um, practical purity. That is, I'm talking about conduct, the way we live. We're we're called to purity. Not to um, sexual immorality, or pagan worship, not to being like the world, but to being like Christ. A lot of people want to work real hard to be relevant, uh, you know, and kind of, you know, in with the times and all this. Now, let me tell you something. That is easy to do. <laughs> that's, that's, what we're, that's what we're fighting. That's what we don't want to do. Not just for the sake of being different, but because if we're like Christ, it is going, it, that's going to be the, the, uh, the, the consequence. It's going to set us against the flow of the culture. So we want to be godly. Paul says this, and you all know this well. Those of you who have been going to Sunday school, uh, you're reading a whole book that unpacks this, this, uh, this single passage in 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Have nothing, having nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So, you know, you can work out and make an effort to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger um, or, you know, whatever. Be, be like um, some famous uh, athlete. That's going to have some value in the temporary life. In other words, you may be able to help you feel better, may help your blood flow better and all that. Paul's not denying that. He says that's got some temporal value. But godliness is profitable for the now and for eternity. So he says, make sure you train yourself for that. And then fourthly, Christians, or we could say Christian congregations, must be characterized by pursuit of heavenly reward. We ought to be characterized by a pursuit for heavenly reward. Now, some people think that runs contrary to grace. I don't think it does because Jesus and Paul and Peter and James and the list goes on taught both. We're saved, just like I said a moment ago, by grace through faith, by grace alone. Nevertheless, the Lord constantly throughout the New Testament, Old Testament and New Testament, holds before us promise of reward. Believe and you'll live, for example. Or everything we've been seeing here. Conquer and what? You won't be hurt by the second death. 
Conqueror, you'll have hidden manna, a white stone, a new name. Conqueror, I'll give you the morning star. You'll rule with a rod of iron. Get it? I mean, he's constantly putting out there as a motivator reward. In fact, Jesus says um, in John 12, now this is actually a word of of, uh, condemning the, the Pharisees. He says, many even of the authorities, John says, many of even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for, now here's the reason John gives, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In other words, he's saying instead of seeking the glory that comes from God, they were seeking the glory that comes from man. Here, Jesus tells the church at Smyrna, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Later, in chapter 12, he characterizes the redeemed this way, They loved not their lives even unto death. So, not seeking temporal reward, the glory of man, but seeking eternal reward, the glory that comes from God. Would you stand, please? And all of these things, as I said in the beginning, are given to us as training, chastisement, because the Lord loves us. He chastens those whom He loves. It's good to be loved by God. (laughs) It's good to be loved by the Lord. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we are thankful for Your love for us. And again... We pray, Lord, if there's anyone among us today who does not know Your love, who does not know Your saving grace, who does not know the forgiveness that comes through the atoning work of Christ alone and trusting in Him, who does not have the assurance of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray, open their hearts now. We ask, make spiritually blind eyes see. Make hearts of stone into hearts of flesh for their eternal good and to the praise and glory and honor of Your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.